This is a Federal News Network podcast. One way to cut the costs of military health care would be to move more people to care provided by civilian organizations. But a Pentagon-funded study says not so fast, and Congress is about to say not so fast on one of the ways the Pentagon buyers also like to spend money. It's all part of this week's DOD Reporter's Notebook by Federal News Network's Jared Serbu and Scott Mossioni. They join me now. And Scott, let's start with that health care proposal. Who proposed what and what did the study look at? This saga has been going on really since 2016, and it came from Congress. It was their idea to right-size the military health system by moving some of the TRICARE beneficiaries away from the Defense Department facilities and into medical care in private areas. That way, the Defense Department could get rid of some of their military treatment facilities that really weren't being used that much, and then also allow some people to get some of the care that they needed just out in the general public. However, this new report, which was funded by the Pentagon, says that even taking away 10% of that population from MTFs could cause significantly worse mortality rates and safety for patients who move to that private area. The reason is it's just the lines to get the help that you need is longer. The care may not be as good in these civilian hospitals, especially ones in very rural areas. That's really their concern. This is really the first look in how TRICARE beneficiaries could be directly impacted by this plan. There was a smaller plan that came out in July that looked at people that only had colon issues, and really they came to the same conclusions, but obviously a much smaller population. This one is something that looks at the whole thing within itself. Now, DOD and the Defense Health Agency have been kind of rethinking how they're working this downsizing because of how COVID really showed them their capacity issues within the medical field. So they have said that they're rethinking everything, and we haven't heard much back from that. But what we have heard is that some of the assessments of the civilian marketplaces were not consistent with provider quality. There's a lot of inaccurate information they used how to calculate how far patients sure. have to drive to get the health care they need. So, you know, this is something that we're going to keep a close eye on because it's likely to change in the future after these reports. And was the proposal to downsize to remove military members from TRICARE or simply civilians or family members? This would mostly be civilians and family members, and it also stems partly from the national defense strategy in terms of making lethality more of a priority. This would help troops get into care faster, get them back into a ready position faster because they don't have to wait as long. And it also would help the Defense Department downsize some of their military medical billets and put those into billets more focused on lethality and other things like that. So still an open question, bottom line. Exactly. And, you know, we're checking in with the Defense Health Agency to see at this point where they are with this plan, because so much has changed, obviously, since they planned this in 2016, you know, with the pandemic and now with this support. So this may be something that they're second guessing at some point. And Jared Serbu, the question of money comes up, perhaps not surprisingly, it it took him so long, but Congress is now questioning the transparency of the way the DOD is spending money under the increasingly popular other transaction authorities. So what are they saying now? Yeah, not just other transaction authorities, but also middle-tier acquisition, which which people may have heard a little bit less of. But MTA, sometimes called Section 804 Authority, essentially lets the military services bypass most of the usual acquisition rules in the DOD 5000 manual, as long as they can produce a rapid prototype or a rapid fielding within five years. That's one of the areas where Senate appropriators are expressing some concern in the appropriations bill that they released last week. One of the things they point out with MTAs, Tom, is that DOD is now using 
Chinese for 74 separate weapons programs, putting them on that rapid acquisition pathway. And the concern is that they're actually using this system that was designed to produce prototypes quickly for actual end items without doing the documentation that you would need to do to plan for how to sustain those things over the long haul, to provide transparency to Congress over what the long-term costs of these items are going to be, and how they fit into a broader military strategy. So that's the thing on MTAs. On OTAs that you mentioned, it's back to the same story that we've talked about a million times and that the DOD Inspector General highlighted earlier this year, which is that DOD's own data systems just do not capture nearly enough data about how the department is using other transaction authorities, particularly OTA transactions that happen inside of private consortiums, which is happening increasingly in the Defense Department. In that environment, you really only see the initial award that was made to the consortium management company. That's what shows up in the federal procurement data system. You don't get detail on who's actually doing the work, for the most part, inside the consortium, the company that actually is receiving the OT award. So concerns from Senate appropriators on both these fronts, both on MTA and on OTA. In both cases, the short version is they're really just demanding that DOD come back with a better way to capture that data and have discussions with the committee so that they understand exactly how these authorities are being used. Nobody's saying at this point, take them away. They are saying we need some transparency over how you guys are doing business here. Got it. Yeah, that was my question. They're not ready to clamp down on it because they do see the efficacy of it. They just want, as you say, to be more informed. They want to be more informed, and it's increasingly important the more these authorities get used. I mean, I talked a second ago about how many MTA programs out there. There's just an explosion in OTAs. The last numbers I ran said back in 2016 when this ball really got rolling, it was used for about $1.6 billion that year. By 2020, $16.5 billion per year, and we were looking to outpace that in 2021, even though we don't have final numbers yet. I guess it says as much about the DFAR as it says about OTA because of that will to go away from the DFAR when possible. To work around the system, that's right. All right. And Scott, one of the acquisition areas that you have written about in particular that Congress is also sweating over is the acquisitions done by the Space Force. Sounds like there's still some overlap with what the Air Force is doing. Yeah, actually overlap within the whole Defense Department itself. One of the biggest selling points for the Space Force was to consolidate the Defense Department's space acquisition efforts. And what we saw in the past through a GAO report was that really it was spread out all over the place. You know, every service had its own space acquisition, you know, finger in the pie, if you will. And the Space Force was supposed to bring all that together. However, Congress hasn't seen exactly what they were hoping to see in the nearly two years the Space Force has been around. What they're asking for is that DOD really give them a whole list of all the programs they're working on in space so they can see how these programs are being procured and which ways they're going through to get procures and to find any inefficiencies there. One other thing to point out is that DOD was supposed to create a really space acquisition chief in October of 2022. Now, Frank Kendall, who's the secretary of the Air Force, has said that he would like to speed up that process of appointing that person and creating that office. Then he's sent a letter to Congress asking them for the authority to do that. We've seen in the past that they've created quite a few different directorates and things like that really to prepare for this position. But I think that that's really what they think is holding up a lot of this problem. What that would bring together is the Space Development Agency, part of the Space Force, the Space Rapid Capabilities Office, and the Space and Missiles System Center. So all those together would give this person a fair amount of consolidation and concentration around space acquisition. I would have thought the space acquisition would be the first office they'd want to establish. 
You would think that, but they really had to go through all the HR and all the beginning parts of just creating a service before they jumped into that. It's also just a matter of taking over programs and really bringing them over from the Navy, from the Army, from the Air Force, and all these other areas from the Defense Department itself, where people already had their hand in creating these programs and keeping them sustained or developing. All right, we'll keep an eye on that one, too. Federal News Network, Scott Massioni and Jared Serbu. Check out their DOD Reporter's Notebook, now online at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the President and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything, and it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life, and um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con- consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I, we'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it. Um, From Sea to the C-Suite, fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but... Uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, 
I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell C-Stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment. And it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon, uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons and in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. 
they're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.